Today, our previous co-host, Derek Fang, lecturer at Yale University's Department of Statistics and Data Science, returns to chat with us about a rather philosophical topic. So what is that topic, Derek? Today, I want to talk about epistemology, which is the theory of knowledge itself. Some context. When I first talked to Derek about coming on to Databytes for an episode, this is the thing he wanted to talk about, the theory of knowledge and where it stands in today's day and age. And I think you arrived at these ideas as a result of reading that paper about Deep Patient. So when you pitched this whole idea to me, I said, you better start talking about Deep Patient first. That sounds about right. So this is sort of related to the discussion we had last time I was here. And it just feels like the shape and form of knowledge has changed in this world. I think the world has gotten to a point where, you know, technology and everything with it is moving so fast that it's worth thinking about slowing down a bit to question, how do we know things? How do we, in the age of big data, process all of the information that gets thrown at us? So I think if we go back to the greatest breakthroughs in science, from Einstein's famous E equals to MC squared equation to Darwin's beautiful theory of natural selection, what these all have in common is that they are fundamental laws that can be distilled into simple statements. So for instance, physicists are still in search of the grand unified theory of physics, which Einstein himself spent the last 30 years of his life trying to figure out to no avail. On the other hand, we have the more recent advances in science. As I mentioned in my previous appearance, one of the poster child for this movement is the paper on deep patient. Okay, so I'm going to do this thing that always seemed to be done on serial TV dramas. Previously, in episode 39 of Databytes, <laughs> the key things to note about the paper on deep patient are... <laughs> First, I was just going to say, this gives me so much pressure, so I just ruined it for you. Uh, no, I could have totally done that, but anyway. So it's a method that handles EHRs. Uh, which are these high-dimensional and unstructured records for your health. It does this by compressing the data into a 500-length vector of numbers. And this feature vector can then be used for downstream operations, such as predicting the occurrence of future diseases, even for such diseases like psychiatric disorders that are notoriously difficult for physicians to detect. Deep patient does really, really well. So where does that leave us? That leaves us with a method that beats the state-of-the-art but it does so by this mysterious method that is really unable to explain itself when it makes such predictions. And this is the contrast, right? So it's very different from the beautiful laws of yesteryear where we could predict the world and explain it, both of them at the same time. So another recent development that's you know in a similar vein comes from Google DeepMind, the company that created AlphaGo, uh, which was able to beat the top human Go grandmasters. And this new thing is called AlphaFold. So coincidentally, or not, we did talk about DeepMind and AlphaFold in episode 15. And in that episode, we talked about how it had far outperformed state-of-the-art methods in a protein structure prediction competition. But I suppose we'll talk about it more deeply soon. So Susan, do you remember back in the day, it was all the craze to run these citizen science software packages on your computer, for instance, like SETI at home? Yeah, I, I think I ran one of those softwares that would optimize something like protein structures um, or maybe something else. I can't remember so long ago. Um, and it would do this when the computer went into its screensaver mode. You know, let your idle computing time be donated to a good cause. And nowadays, people 
probably value idle compute power a lot more and mine Bitcoin with it or something. <laughs> yeah, well, probably a few years back, maybe less so now. Yeah, but let me just interject that I've never heard of this term, citizen science, before you mentioned it, so I Googled it up. And while nowadays we think of it necessarily being implemented by software that can be distributed to people around the world, there are examples of citizen science efforts as early as in the 1800s. It used to be that we didn't have enough weather stations around America to be able to keep track of daily temperatures and rainfall. Um, so the National Weather Service actually started the Cooperative Observer Program in 1890. On Wikipedia, it says that the program attracted over 8,700 volunteers who would report on daily weather measurements um, on a daily basis. I actually work with some of this data in my previous life in a weather derivatives firm. And you know that data is volunteered up when there would be missing observations around the holidays. Like there could be a huge snowstorm on Christmas or Christmas Eve, but people are traveling to see family. So there's no record of the snowfall on that particular day. Yeah, I, I imagine if, if I were working in this, I would be one of those data points. Um, <laughs> that's really cool. I didn't realize your past life was so eventful. All I thought you did was be an actuary and sit on your, you know, desk all day. Although, I mean, you probably did still sit on your desk all day, but at least the the subject matter seemed really interesting. I guess it's all in the past now. Yeah, <laughs> it's just I guess it's interesting because then maybe it was so eventful that you uh, decided to head back into the sedentary life of a PhD student. Oh yeah, definitely. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So you brought this up, um, which is that. One of the famous citizen science software packages was Folding at Home. Um, so the other one was called SETI at Home. This is Folding at Home. And this was tasked with determining protein folding structures. We discussed protein structures as a really important problem in data science that is now rapidly becoming excelled at by machines. Um, we talked about this in episode 15, that same one that we mentioned um, AlphaFold in. Uh, but let's summarize why we care about protein structures in case you missed that episode. All right, so disclaimer, I am not a biologist, so uh, be patient with me. But you know, that's one of the great things about being a statistician, you get to play in everyone's backyard as Fisher once said. Luckily, I'm also not a biologist, so I cannot correct your blunders anyway. So you're all set. <laughs> great. So firstly, uh, proteins are the fundamental building blocks for sustaining life. Almost every single function that our body performs can be traced back to one or more of these proteins. But before a protein can take on its role, it must fold into a functional three-dimensional structure. In other words, when they're created, they're like a piece of string lying randomly on the ground. And then at some point, it would just simultaneously fold itself. And crucially, the function of each protein depends on the 3D structure that it takes on. So proteins aren't just the stuff that makes up our flesh. They actually help us function. They can transport or store nutrients or act as a messenger between different parts of our bodies. And understanding what proteins do can be crucial to the development of novel drugs. Exactly. So a good example of a protein whose structures informs its function would be an antibody protein which is what comprises of our immune system. They are Y-shaped and are akin to unique hooks. So by latching onto viruses and bacteria that fit onto these hooks, they're able to detect and tag these disease-causing microorganisms for extermination. Another example is CAS9, uh, which is the protein at the heart of the CRISPR revolution. And it's 
incredibly complicated structure somehow facilitates the cutting and pasting of sections of DNA, which then allow us to edit genes and thereby recreate Frankenstein in real life. <laughs> so unfortunately, determining what the 3D shape of a protein will be from a genetic sequence is a non-trivial task, one that scientists have been working on for decades. So that in a nutshell is the protein folding problem, predicting how these proteins will actually fold. So will the same protein always fold into the same 3D structure? Right. So I had to go ask my biologist friend because this was too much for me. And she told me that there actually isn't a one-to-one -one correspondence between a given protein and the particular structure or fold for that protein, as it really depends on its surroundings. So for instance, in the protein that she works on, the presence of calcium in its surroundings will actually you know, result in a different structure that allows this protein to sort of couple together in, in some manner. But I think that uh, for at least the problem of alpha fold, they sort of do away with this technicality and focus on just for the normal settings, uh, whether or not this protein will fold into the same structure. And so just to belabor the point, the reason why this all is important is because knowing protein structures might help us develop new proteins, um, which can be used to cure diseases or even break down plastics. That sounds ambitious, but you know, probably really good for our environment. In fact, researchers are already engineering bacteria that secrete proteins to make waste biodegradable. And many diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, um, they actually occur as a result of misfolded proteins. Right. So really, there's not much writing on solving this problem of protein folding, except maybe saving the world. Yeah, well, that's why Google puts money to it, I guess. So anyway, you can probably guess where we're going next. We are going in deep. Sorry. Yeah, that was a terrible setup. Yes, that is absolutely correct. So the people at DeepMind were clearly riding the high of having beat humanity at Go and were looking for the next thing to conquer, and they set their sights on protein folding. And from that venture, they produced AlphaFold, which using deep learning techniques was able to beat the state of the art. I'm not going to spend too much time talking about that model. Um, you can find that information in the paper they published about their work, which we'll probably link to in the notes. The reason why I want to bring up this cool paper is because it's yet again an example of a machine learning method that handily beats the state of the art, but doesn't really give us any insight into the problem as these methods are black boxes. A black box algorithm is seemingly opaque. The way you should think about them is that in machine learning, you have input, which is data, that you feed into a model, and the model then produces output. So think of the black box model as literally a black box um, in that you can't see the inner workings of the model. Maybe you know what knobs and cranks are used inside, but you can't really explain how they're arranged in the context of the data. Yeah, and the opposite of this would be a white box or a clear box, depending on your terminology, where you can basically see the insides of this box and you understand how these things work. So an example of a white box algorithm would be linear regression, as you can essentially read off the coefficients for each covariate, and that tells you precisely what the relationship that you've modeled is. Another example of such an algorithm would be a decision tree um, used for predicting outcomes in a supervised learning setup. It essentially allows you to trace the data through a series of yes, no questions to arrive at your prediction. So you can actually interpret in words 
what features or what characteristics of your data gave rise to its ultimate prediction. In two weeks, I'm going to teach decision trees to my class. So almost every single recent advance in machine learning has fallen under the black box category. And these are the algorithms that are driving the Teslas on the road right now as we speak. And I feel like that should make you a little worried. Like, are we pushing the pace of technology so fast that we're not really stopping to understand what we're creating? This is essentially an active area of research, namely the topic of interpretable machine learning, but it's really only in its infancy. And one of the reasons why it's in its infancy is because nobody's really come up with a nice, clean mathematical definition for what it means for an algorithm to be interpretable. And as an aside, this is similar to the story of data privacy, where there was clearly a need for people to come up with ways to protect the privacy of individuals when a database containing their information was released to the public. But the field of data privacy really only came to fruition after some people at Microsoft were able to devise a mathematical notion of data privacy known as differential privacy. And it was from that piece of work that then people were able to come up with methods to counteract differential privacy. And actually, these methods are now used at Apple and, and other technology companies. So that's a topic that's been on the back burner for quite some time now. And of course, it just gets more and more relevant as the era of the Internet of Things um, befalls us and collects so much data on us in a seamless and invisible manner. Okay. So let's take a step back, because I think we've talked about a bunch of things, and I'm sure your listeners are as lost as my poor students were at 9 a.m. this morning for my class on cross-validation. That's definitely a topic that I failed at explaining in class a couple of times. It feels so natural when you're doing cross-validation, but it's much harder to explain it on slides how it actually works. But go on. So epistemology. In the old days, we had fundamental laws that described our world and taught us something about it. In this new age, we have deep learners that predict things with superhuman accuracy, but don't really give us any insight, whatever insight means. You know, the question is, what has changed? There are people out there, powerful people, who will tell you that the nature of knowledge itself has changed, hence epistemology. I'm going to quote an article by David Weinberger, a technologist and commentator, one of those powerful people. He says that we used to believe, quote, if we work hard enough and think clearly enough, the universe will yield its secrets. For the universe is knowable and thus at least somewhat pliable to our will, end quote. But the reality is that, as he says, quote, the true complexity of the world far outstrips the laws and models we devise to explain it. Our newly capacious machines can get closer to understanding it than we can, and they, as machines, don't really understand anything at all, end quote. So his thesis really is that in today's world, there is a fundamental and immutable trade-off between prediction accuracy and interpretability or understanding in this big data-driven new world. In other words, we can either have the deep patience and the alpha folds that are black boxes, or we can have the interpretable but ultimately not very great white boxes like decision trees, but we can't ever have both. So I'm feeling that the central thesis here that you're going to bring up is that you disagree with them. That is exactly right. I think it's premature to say that there is a fundamental trade-off between accuracy and interpretability. We just don't know the answer to this question. And one of these days, maybe someone will come up with a method called deep understanding, you know, which does deep learning, but also is interpretable. But more importantly, I think what has changed is simply the scope of science. 
if we look back at those laws, they were about nature, right? About the physical world around us. And the beautiful thing is that these fundamental laws that governed nature turn out to be simple. I mean, it didn't have to be that way, though I guess Occam's razor would disagree on that point. But now science sort of has entered the realm of humans, both internally and externally. And everything related to humans is just incredibly complicated, right? The two examples I've mentioned, deep patient and alpha fold, have been about the internals of the human body. There, I'm actually pretty optimistic that hopefully we'll find some more succinct truths about our body and the way it works, but it's just a matter of time. I feel like we're doing a large amount of speculating at this point, but just to summarize, I think you've taken understanding um, in that earlier quote to mean succinct or simple. And it is worth mentioning that the trajectory of scientific advancement, if we trace back through history, has always headed towards the more and more complex, right? That's just sort of a natural progression. We used to think that the Earth's orbit was circular at one point in time. It's, it's impressive that that was true, that we took that to be truth once upon a time. And then as science progressed, we learned that the orbit is actually elliptical. And before we had good instruments like advanced telescopes and so on, there were just so many things in space that we couldn't explain, we couldn't observe either. So one might even argue that some of the modern advances in astronomy border on the uninterpretable or unobservable. I guess we don't question that quite as much. But somehow similarly with data science or big data, the improvement in technology um, equates to better data quality, better data quantity, and then better compute power um, such that we get to experience a quantum leap in our field. But that leap is done entirely in a black box sometimes, and that then triggers these debates about, you know, interpretability. Why can't we interpret anything anymore? So similarly, you know, we've talked about nature and the problems of the physical world. Something we haven't really mentioned is social sciences. Um, and this is related to the work I do on social networks. And there is, there's a parallel problem here, which is that trying to model the behavior of millions of humans interacting with each other, so for instance, like in economics, then just because of the sheer complexity of those interactions, given the sheer scale of things, and just the fact that human interactions are you know, complicated, even at an individual level, but then if you have to multiply it by a million times from these millions of people interacting together, it's not surprising that machine learning methods are able to pick up some patterns in the data, but it might still be a black box. Ultimately, what I'm trying to say is that there are two sources of complexity in the world. There's complexity from nature, and this complexity from interactions between different units. In the case of humans, then you end up with social science. For instance, now we're using machine learning methods to predict the behavior of people on Facebook. And this is, of course, causing huge problems to our society. Speaking of which, quick plug, I'm in the process of scheduling a guest speaker soon to talk about that. As long as that guest speaker is me, then uh, I would be fine with that. Wow. Okay. I'm, I'm getting to think that this is a long con wherein towards the end of an episode, you leave us hanging with a thread, you know, some kind of a cliffhanger and you're baiting us to invite you back. You caught me red handed. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> to conclude, what I'm trying to say is that it's not so much that the nature of knowledge has changed, but that we sort of moved onto more difficult problems. And naturally, because, you know, we solved all this easier problems. And because we're dealing with difficult problems, these may or may not have fundamental laws that govern their behavior. But the problem here is that it's masked by the fact that the state of the art techniques to modeling these things 
are currently black boxes. So it's unclear if it's just a limitation of our methods or there's some fundamental inability for us to understand these laws. So what you're saying here is that, you know, we're talking about how a lot of science nowadays is just, you know, it's uninterpretable. And, and there's two possible reasons. One might be that the science itself has gotten that the actual underlying relationships have become so complicated, or it could be that the methods that we're applying just fundamentally model them. So model them as these complicated interactions. And it's not yet clear which of these things are true. So I want to play devil's advocate because your claim is that um, it's quite possible there just haven't been enough research done on interpretable methods. But I feel like all of these prediction competitions that we hear about, you know, they serve as a Darwinian survival of the fittest platform for prediction methods. The ones that are coming out on top, they just happen to be the black box methods. It's not that interpretable methods are no longer being developed. It's rather that they're just not doing well enough to attract attention. I think that there's not been that much research on interpretable machine learning methods. So as we said, the two examples that we had were linear models and decision trees, and these were invented millions of years ago. Before we humans evolved. There's just so obvious that like, there's no way they weren't known before that. But, you know, ultimately, I think this basically says that we really need smart people like yourself working in this area because I just don't think there's necessarily a trade-off here. And that's something that I'm trying to work on in my research, but, you know, it's a struggle. I think it's a difficult problem and one that may not ever be solvable, but I think it's still important for us to try because, again, the stakes are really high here, right? If you think about things like self-driving cars, there you have life and death issues and it would be really nice if we were able to create these technologies that were able to you know drive cars but also we would understand the actions that they make yeah and i think what you're getting at there is if we can understand how a self-driving car works then we can be a bit more circumspect in making sure that there are the right safeguards against um, hazards that might occur on the road whereas you know black box methods kind of it's because we can't understand them, we can't even figure out where the risks are in that scenario. Well, anyway, thank you so much, Derek, for coming by for this episode. Um, we eagerly await future research from you on, um, on machine learning methods that are interpretable. So uh, we'll keep an eye out for that. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me back. I'm sure it won't be the last time. <laughs>